0: Howdy everyone, on today's episode of Taxpayer Talks we discuss the Texas Senate's committee assignments and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick potentially flip-flopping on the idea of school choice legislation and whether or not it will apply to rural communities. We also have a conversation with Vance Ginn, a PhD economist to talk about National School Choice Week, what school choice legislation would mean for Texas families, as well as we get his thoughts on things like the base budgets filed by both the Texas House and Texas Senate and their implications when it comes to spending and property tax relief for Texas taxpayers. Episode four of Taxpayer Talks starts right now. Let's get into it.
1: Taxpayer Talks is brought to you by Texans for Fiscal Responsibility and is made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. If you want to support our work, you can visit texastaxpayers.com slash donate to make a tax-deductible contribution today. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome to Taxpayer Talks. I am here with Jeremy Kitchen, our Executive Director. Of course, I'm Tim Harden, uh, President of TFR. Of course, it has been a, a, a fairly, uh, you know, kind of dull week, but of course it is School Choice Week, which we're going to talk about. And the big piece of news that we had was Senate actually released their committee assignments. You want to talk about that for a minute, Jeremy?
0: Sure. Uh, there's there's only a few takeaways, but as what normally happens, right, you had the lieutenant governor um, announce announced before the House, right, that they, he's assigned his committees. Um, the, the key takeaway from kind of a, a pro-taxpayer perspective is that Um, on the Senate Finance Committee, the committee that we'll primarily pay the most attention to, uh, at least on the Senate side throughout the session, um, you had a taxpayer champion, right? A TFR taxpayer champion, Bob Hall, uh, get added to that committee, which was uh, uh, great news. But by and large, from like a kind of 30,000 foot level, a lot of the committees generally stayed the same. There wasn't much movement as far as like who chaired those committees, right? From that of the interim or from uh, the previous legislative session. Um, But the good news there, right, for Conservatives generally is that it looks as if there's nothing that would necessarily stand in the way of at least getting a lot of those kind of conservative priorities um, through the Senate. Uh, Obviously, we do not know the House committee assignments as of yet. Uh, My understanding is that. House lawmakers were submitting their kind of their cards right uh, this week, and so it is very likely just using previous legislative sessions as a as an example that will either be next week or maybe the week after uh, will be when we hear what the House committee assignments are so.
1: Yeah, and for those that, that know, we we have described before, but in the Senate, all committees are appointed by the Lieutenant Governor In the House. They actually have a seniority system, which is typically why it takes a little bit longer. Um, so they're basically working through, uh, legislators will, you know, put together a card where they have, they pick their seniority appointments, and then the speaker will typically assign them one committee, and then the other will be appointed based on uh, their seniority, right? And so it depends on how long they've been there. It's kind of one of these weird things where the longer you've been there, you know, The more benefits you get, and that doesn't just work on committee assignments; that works on offices and parking spaces and everything. And so, you know, the whole system is kind of uh, backwards, in in my opinion. You're encouraged to be there longer. Uh, But that said, uh, we should get those in the next uh, week to week and a half, uh, and we will uh, report on that when we find out. There should be some interesting things. I think there should be some people who are who are kind of switched around uh, from last around, Of course, we've lost a lot of legislators as well, so we'll be interested to see uh, where they come out on that.
0: Yeah, so here we have an interesting, I, obviously this is a tweet, but, uh, you know, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was the keynote at, a, at an event that took place um, I guess yesterday. So we're recording this on Wednesday. So on Tuesday, uh, by the Texan News, right? And uh, some of the one of the more interesting things to come out of that is he was asked about previous comments he had made about you know what a like whatever the school choice bill or you know package looks like. We still right have not uh, necessarily seen anything to that effect. Both the governor and lieutenant governor have talked about it. We commented on, I guess, a few weeks back now, uh, that you know we had the lieutenant governor kind of out of nowhere. Um, kind of cut his own knees out from under him, right? Right at the beginning, before session even started and talking uh, about how they're going to bracket out, right? Rural communities from whatever a would-be school choice bill looks like. Um, You know, and and of course we take the position of, if it's good for, you know, this subset of the population, it should be good for everyone. We shouldn't necessarily have two different systems. Um, But then it seems as if you had the Lieutenant Governor backtrack on those comments uh, when he was giving uh, this keynote address there at the Texan news event. Um, and basically, you know, come up with this um, excuse of, uh, well, you know, that was said uh, on one of my 15-hour days, and I, I didn't really say that, right? So just wanted to get your thoughts um, on that uh, as we're now in the midst of, you know, the start of the legislative session.
1: Yeah, I think it's important, and and, and uh, I'm going to speculate, right, uh, that, that we understand why he backtracked on this and, and why he actually said that in the first place. And the, and the, the main reason is the dynamics of rural districts and the dynamics of rural districts is the, that the, the government schools, uh, the public education, uh, you know, sector is the largest employer typically, um, for, for these rural counties. And so, uh, it is, you know, funding education and kind of the TA kind of, uh, you know, c- controlling kind of, um, uh, policy and 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 steering teachers towards there's there's kind of a lot of fear mongering if hey if if uh, you know if school choice happens then then they're going to take money away from public education and you're not going to get raises and and all of this different stuff and so uh, there's a lot of you know kind of uh, trepidation from from teachers to get behind school choice and so you know. Dan Patrick, being a politician, thinking about future elections, uh, does not want to rub all these rural districts the wrong way, especially because he spent, you know, a large portion of time actually traveling around the state during this last campaign cycle. And I'm sure he did interact with a lot of these people and I'm sure he did hear that. And so I think that was the reason for the initial comment was he was kind of trying to reassure, uh, you know, probably both, you know, people associated with the TEA and, or more importantly, teachers who are actually voting that, hey, don't worry, we're not gonna take money away from. From you, We're still going to give you raises, or at least insinuate that, right? Um, but you know, uh, the the larger school choice narrative and the larger uh, kind of demand from public is that you know school choice is for all, and and I think that really rubbed people the long, wrong way. I'm just going to assume being in politics for as long as I have, that they probably were doing some polling and uh, in the, in the, in the background, they probably realized, Oh, well, that's not polling very well overall. Maybe we should switch gears. And so this is very typical about how, you know, most politicians and lawmakers work is if they, you know, they say something and it doesn't pull well. And like I said, I'm speculating, but you know, this is just based on experience uh, that I have uh, that they're like, okay, uh, that wasn't a good move. Let's go ahead and, and and back that out and, and kind of get behind the larger school choice narrative. That's, that's, really nationwide and statewide and so kind of a a self-correcting uh statement uh has been given and so it seems as though that doesn't look like they they alluded in with the inaugural address that hey they have a, a special provision that's going to take care of rural districts or something along those lines so we don't know what that means it's kind of a uh a very general and broad statement but they did say that we are going to see this in the future both Abbott and him have had kind of come to this agreement and so we will see probably in the next few weeks what that means but it does seem that he has kind of dropped uh that idea of bracketing out uh school choice for rural districts
0: talking about school finance right like one of the things we've been critical of in the past right has been uh you know we we allocate a a good amount of money to public education, right? As you've written about previously, it's like over half our budget goes to some form of public education um, on on the state level. Uh, We had, you know, it was filed last week, we wrote about this. You had uh, State Representative Brian Harrison file a bill that kind of dealt with um, the element of this that we've been critical of in the past, which is you have like, let's say, superintendents, right, that get paid Ridiculous salaries, way above even what the governor of Texas gets paid. Right, uh, the governor was is allocated based on the budget bill from last cycle, $153,000 a year. Right, governor of the ninth largest economy in the world, and so you had state representative Brian Harrison file a bill uh, seeking to cap, right, a bureaucrat, right, any these kind of governmental entity salaries at it can be no more than that of the governor. Makes complete sense, right? You, you, why would we have a superintendent who maybe you know is over a school district of let's say 30 000 to 50,000 students or, or what have you make more than the governor of Texas, right? 29 million people, 30 million people as a population, the ninth largest economy in the world. Um, and so it kind of spoke to that. Now, it is important, like obviously, we're talking about the element of superintendents, but this is taxpayer funded bureaucrats, right? These are people in all sorts of political subdivisions, right? Um, up and down, kind of the ballot, if you will, uh, uh, capping it at no more than the governor. What are your What are your thoughts on that?
1: First off, uh, I love it. You know, this is a very similar to an amendment that uh, Stickland bought when I, I worked for him uh, years back, and so uh, obviously I, I support that. And uh, I think you know the the bigger overall um, kind of thoughts are are actually kind of reminiscent of what we talked about you know staff salaries and 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 them raising office allocations. And I made the point that when you work for Public sector, when you work for the government, whether that be for a school, whether that be for you know um, some state agency, or whether that be for the legislature, you are a public servant, and part of that is you get public servant pay. Now, of course, that is not always the case, and I know people who you know work in the capital or work in a lot of these state agencies that make more than doctors and neurosurgeon, and that is certainly the case for school administrators. Uh, I think the highest paid one, I think in the last report that was released was over 700,000 and that's not including uh, like, you know, they get all kinds of benefits for travel and, and, and living expenses. And I think all, almost all of the top 10 were over $400,000, which is just pure insanity, especially when you look at the median salary of Texas, which I think is around $57,000. So the government makes about uh, triple that, which you know he takes care of the entire state. Uh, that that makes sense. You could make the argument he, he could be paid less, but I don't think we're making that argument here. But I think the argument we are making is the guy who runs the whole state, who who essentially you know checks off on the almost three hundred billion dollar biennial budget, he only makes one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Why are these bureaucrats making triple his salary when someone, especially like a school administrator, is a public servant? How, why are they so much more important than say someone that works for DFPS? Um, who 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 deals with the foster care system and is sleeping in offices. Like we've had these conversations in the past as well. They make next to nothing. I wanna say when I was looking at, this is years back, they're in the $40,000 $40, range right? And they're working way more than 40 hours a week. And they are literally sleeping or were, at least at that time, sleeping in offices. They have huge problems. And you could talk about teacher salary as well, right? Um, uh, We can't really complain that schools don't have enough money and the teachers need more money when we're paying administrators uh, three-fourths of a million dollars a year. Uh, And so it is a, it is a good reform. I am sure, you know, the argument against it will be, well, we can't, you know, retain quality people and we can't, well, you know what, that might be the case. Uh, Maybe you should go work in the private sector on the same thing, because quite honestly, the private sector, whatever you're doing in the state, I don't care what it is, whatever you're doing in the state, whether it's, uh, whether it's child services, whether it is, you know, education, the private sector is always going to do a better job. And so if you want that big awesome salary, go to the private sector. But if you understand that you're working for the state or for the government in the public sector, you are a public servant. You're a public servant. And so we should not be paying public servants exorbitant amounts of money, especially not triple the salary of the governor.
0: Well, speaking of payment spending, public versus private, we had a conversation with Vance Ginn, right? PhD economist uh, talking, it's National School Choice Week, right? So we talked about school choice, obviously stuff like this came up. And then of course, uh, we talked about um, the current budget proposals uh, that have been put out by both the House and Senate and what property tax relief at least looks like on the top level and what it actually looks like when you dig into the details. So uh, let's get into that.
1: Hey Vance, how are you doing today? Uh, you know, we we've already mentioned it is School Choice Week, so we wanted to have a conversation about school choice. You've been very vocal advocate for school choice, uh, so just wanted to you know ask you your initial thoughts. Why why is school choice important in Texas?
2: Hey Tim, it's it's good to be with you. And and yes, this is School Choice Week. It's an important, I mean, it's essential. I think for um, overcoming our poverty issues, overcoming criminal justice and other sort of people committing crimes and getting imprisoned and everything else. A lot of this starts with not having a good education and, and a good education K through 12. And so I think it's essential for the state, ultimately, given that the Texas Constitution and Article 7 says that the, the Texas legislature shall fund equitable and efficient Public free schools, right? That doesn't necessarily mean government-run schools. It means whatever schooling is going to be best for the individuals is the way that I read that. And we have not been doing a good service of that. And, and in fact, we've been spending billions and billions of dollars thinking we're going to get uh, different results. And you know, what's the definition of that? It's, it's insanity, right? Because we continue to see um, bad outcomes. We continue to see that people are um being being almost mandated to get vaccines for their kids to be able to go to school. They were shut down for many, for, for a large period, a long period of time during COVID. Um, there, there are these books where you, where all this wokeness is going on. I mean, just one thing after another that could be solved with. School choice. And, and, and I think it's important not only for me and my family, um, where my boys are going to private school right now, but I but I think for those who are economically disadvantaged, lower socioeconomic status, this especially is important for them. Um, I fortunately have the means in order to afford it, but a lot of them do not, right? And and so I think this is a key part for the future of Texas. And by the way, we got to keep up with all these other states. Arizona just passed it, Iowa just passed um, school choice and universal, you know, kind of education savings accounts where money is, is, is flowing to the students, following the student, not the system. And we need more of that across the state. And so I think even as an economist, that this is the best path forward for more economic prosperity, less poverty and lower crime in the great state of Texas.
0: What do you think as far as conversations maybe you've had with lawmakers, right? The prospects right that's always the 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 big takeaway, you know, giving how this issue has been handled historically in the legislature. Right is, generally speaking, you've had variations of what it looks like, but maybe on this issue specifically you don't as much have a Senate problem as much as you do a House problem, what do you think is potentially different this cycle. Maybe in the House or maybe in the legislature or how lawmakers perceive this issue, that it's even something that's being talked about, right, kind of on the, the state level uh, by some of our statewide elected officials versus maybe how lawmakers are looking at it differently than maybe they did last session or the session before.
2: Yeah, Jeremy, I mean, you remember back in 2017, this was a big issue. School choice. Uh, Both the governor and the the lieutenant governor talked about it. There was a big push in the Senate. Um, uh, Chairman uh, Larry Taylor had a bill, an ESA bill, by the way, education savings accounts bill that made it through the Senate um, and then ended up dying in the House and everything else. I mean, so there was a big talk about school choice then, which ultimately wasn't successful. So we've seen this. Now it's a matter of making sure that something happens. And what I think is different this time around is, for one thing, you do see this competition (laughs) among the states where Texas doesn't want to be left behind. And so that's putting more pressure, I think, on Governor Abbott, on Lieutenant Governor Patrick hopefully speaker feeling as we can get some other people within the house also on board. It's because, I mean, there's a lot of house members that are in favor of school choice, right? It's just making sure that they have the votes in order to do this. Um, and you know, there's some talk about, well, this could affect rural areas, right? And, and maybe those, um public schools I, I I don't like calling them public schools I really like calling them government schools because the reason why they're called a public school is not because it's for the public it's considered to be a public good that's where that name came from right and a public good needs to be non-rivalrous uh meaning that you can't have any competition within it um that you also cannot exclude anybody there's an excludability well you can't exclude some people from from public schools because you have district lines that you oftentimes can't cross over so they're not really even a public good and and if you look at the outcomes certainly not providing a public good for people that are innocent bystanders around them and so they're really government schools at the end of the day but a lot of in these rural areas you may have one school or a couple schools or just the school district in general is a big voting block right it all goes down to politics at some point and and if you start to upset the educrats those individuals within the within the government school system they start to fight back a lot and then that could lose votes For these politicians who they care about that a lot because they want to get reelected right, and so when you think about those dynamics what the one question that I would like to ask is for these rural areas, if your school is so good, why are you going to lose students, why is this any of this funding going to go away, if your school is so good, um, you should have nothing to worry about. And that what that indicates to me is that they don't want the competition. They don't want to have to improve their quality or things of that nature because ultimately it should be what's best for the students and for the, the for the parents and, and even for the teachers. I mean, look, guys, the research on this as well is, is important because um, what we have is what's called a monopsony situation. I don't want to go too down the road of this, but you have one consumer really of teachers. Uh, about 93% of all Texas teachers are employed by who? The government schools, the government schools are the ones that determine the teacher salaries, what the ranges are going to be, what the increases are going to be. So there's very little competition for these teachers to go out to the marketplace and demand a higher salary, but they would under school choice. The teachers should also be in support of this because now as you bring about more competition at private schools, home schools. Co-ops, all the different things that are going to be best suited for those individual students. The teachers can go and fill those supplies that are needed um, wherever those needs may be, and they can demand a higher salary in the in the process. And so, I think that this is going to be an essential time for Texas to pass school choice. You've got Abbott talking about it a lot. You've got Patrick talking about it some, and I hope more in the House will also get on board um, because this is really a pivotal moment I think in the in the future uh, for Texas. So I, I want to deal with kind of a kind of a two- part question for you.
1: One, you know I'm not sure all of our listeners know even what an ESA is, right? So mm. I wanted to have you kind of explain what an education savings account is. And then I want you to deal with the criticism that, that is uh, typically thrown mostly from conservatives, uh, mostly from the homeschool committee, which I, I'm part of. Uh, I homeschool all five of my kids. And so the fear and why some conservatives do not support uh, school choice is because the fear is we have we have one of the freest, homeschooling environments in Texas, it's honestly phenomenal. I, I'm i am so glad to live in the state that I am being able to homeschool my kids. But with ESAs, if, if if homeschooling was part of that, I remember back in 2017, I think they talked about like specific curriculum that this could like even homeschool curriculum. And so with that almost always inevitably come strings attached. And so that is the fear with these ESAs. And of course, we haven't seen a bill, we haven't seen at least the bill that that Abbott and, and Patrick alluded to that they they have, right. And so is is that fear unfounded? And, um, and what, you know, what is the danger there, right? Is, is there a real danger is a real cause for concern that government gets its grubby hands and the foot in the door on homeschoolers and even private schools. Um, and, and we we can't ever kind of
2: cut those strings once once they're attached. Yeah, Tim, I mean, I think it's a good, it's an important concern. It's it is a um... Uh, Something that should be under consideration because we don't want that. (laughs) We don't want the state to be telling um, homeschoolers what to do. Co-ops, what to do private schools, what to do. I mean, I think that is an essential concern. And that is one of the things that I think that we've learned the lessons of over time uh, within the ESA, the education savings accounts um, sort of uh, uh, bills, the, the, the what's, what's been pushed forward in Arizona, um, places like Iowa as well, is to say, look, we don't need those rules. Ultimately, the, the one that's most accountable to their kids are the parents. The the parents should be able to decide what's going to be best for their kids, not the state, not some sort of um, uh, you know some sort of uh, test that the, everyone's going to need to take. Um, and so I need, I think that's going to be an essential part of any bill is to make sure that parents have the freedom, they're empowered to have the freedom to do what's best for their kids and not overstep. And, and education savings accounts, you know, um, the the way optimally that they would work is that you as a parent would have an account kind of like a health savings account um, where the money would go into this fund. And then you could be able to use that fund to purchase any sort of education services that you want. So if you want to use it for a, Government school, a public school, right? You could go and do that. Um, you want to take it to a private school, you can do that. You can use it for homeschool books. You could use it for a computer if that's going to go and help you to your kids to be able to, 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 to do their schooling. Um, even tutoring, it can go to tutoring. So it's really f- more flexible for you. And what's important about an ESA that's different than what vouchers, you hear vouchers, right? It's got this negative connotation now. Oh, that's just a voucher. Um, which Melda Friedman, one of my favorite economists. He really revolutionized this idea. He wasn't the one that necessarily thought about it, but he talked about it a lot, right? And really got the idea of school vouchers, school choice, and everything else going. Um, But school vouchers are different than an ESA. I should just say that right now. A voucher is where you could take one amount of dollars. And right now in Texas, we're spending close to $15,000 per student. We're spending that amount. Um, I, I say spending because we actually don't know the cost. We spend that amount, but what's the true cost? We don't know because that's just what the state has decided how much we're going to spend, okay? But let's say you're able to take that $15,000. With a voucher, you can only take that $15,000 and then take it to a private school, right? Or or maybe you want to use it for homeschool, but usually that's what it was for, was for a private school. And so it's one system to another system or one school to another school was a voucher. And what we've learned over time is that's not really giving the, the parents the amount of freedom that they should have. Because that private school may not even be best. That public school may not be best. There may be a a plethora, a menu of options that they should have available for what's going to work best for their students, uh, for their kids, in this case for parents, right? And so they take that $15,000 from that that government school, maybe they use $10,000 for the private school, that leaves $5,000 that they could do additional curriculum at home. Um, that they could go to tutoring if they need it or other types of things that gives them really that freedom. And again, this is where it comes in of where instead of funding a system or a school, we're funding students, that the parents are getting these each and every dollars. And that also is where the severance is between what the Supreme Court has, has talked about is that the state then doesn't have the control over the dollars. Yes, this is taxpayer money. Yes, we need to spend it efficiently and effectively and making sure that it's not being wasted in the process, but that there is a severance there to where this money is going to the parents, and that's allowing for more freedom um, and, and ultimately what I think will be an important stepping stone for Texas to be as prosperous as possible because our kids and our parents are having as much opportunity with their families as they can to meet their unique needs.
0: What are your, obviously you've spoken to some of it, what is the ideal school choice system here in Texas, right? If if it's ESAs, what would an ideal bill look like right tim alluded to earlier that we haven't seen anything we've had the governor and lieutenant governor um talk about right kind of this parental rights uh sort of thing um, there have been bills uh filed you know to kind of like nitpick at certain subset sections of, of the public but i have not seen to my knowledge as of this recording at least a kind of overarching omnibus bill or something you know that uh, lawmakers uh, to include uh, the Dan- uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick or statewide elected officials like Dan Patrick or Governor Abbott have thrown their weight behind. In your view, yeah. what is the ideal, let's say, ESA bill this session um, that maybe tackles some of these issues, right? The paying $15,000 uh, per student, right, sort of thing, yeah. gives everyone quality education, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, Jeremy, I mean, so you do have a couple of bills that are out there. Senator um, Mays Milton has a bill. Um, that that's out there, which I think is a good step in the right direction. But my ideal form of education savings account would be one that is universal. So there's no carve outs. Everyone gets it. And the parents, if they want to, to apply for it, I mean, there probably is going to be some sort of application process. I would like for there not to be. But just so you had access to that account, there's probably going to need to be some form of an application process that's going to go on there, right? Um, just to have that information and being put directly into your account. Um, but make it universal to where all students can get it uh, there's no carve-outs for rural versus urban because there's some talk about that where you're going to have carve-outs for rural areas so that way you can get enough votes. Again, it goes back to the, the politicians and, and winning elections and, and vote-seeking and everything. Um, for them to be able to get to actually vote for this, we don't need any of that. If it's good for people in urban areas, it's good for people in rural areas. If it's good for the disadvantaged, it's good for those with means. If, you know what I mean? Like We should stop picking winners and losers. We don't like that. And as, as good fiscal conservatives, we don't like picking winners and losers. that's not a role for government. So this is what we're going to provide it and and, and and look as a more classical liberal libertarian guy you know in a lot of ways, um, I could see a day where we where you don't have any any public schools right where government isn't funding this at all. Um, I could get behind that. But the Constitution, we've got to change the Constitution in order to do that, which I think is a high hurdle. I don't see that happening anytime soon, but I could get behind that. And so what I want is something that's going to give us the most flexibility possible. So education savings account, the full, how much ever it is, $15,000 per student that goes into this account. It's universal. And you get it today. One of the problems that I didn't like about the 2017 bill was that you had to put your child in, so let's say you're in a private school or homeschool, you had to put your child in a public school for a year before you would be eligible to get the education savings account. I think that's a disservice to families who want to keep their kids in homeschool or keep their kids in private school because um, it's not just about getting into the, the, the government school problem, but you may not like what they're teaching. You may have a certain curriculum that you like better that seems tends to work better for your kids that you should be able to continue that. There should because what happens if you send your kid to a a, a, the the government school that's around you um, and they're not as far as far along as your child was at home or in private school you're going to set them back a whole year before they can go back in so so this needs to be as universal um, my ideal again is this universal education savings account every dollar goes into the parent there are no carve outs or anything else and 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 then we've cut these rules and regulations that the state is going to think that they have for an accountability system. And, and Tim, back to your question earlier, um, people talk about, well, there's no accountability. This is taxpayer dollars. There's no accountability. If you don't have rules, our accountability system in Texas for government schools is horrendous. Why would we want to impose that on homeschoolers and private schoolers and everything else? The ultimate accountability are the parents. Why don't we trust parents? And 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 look, some parents are not going to have the best understanding for where their kids going to go. I, look, I'm not naive. I understand that. But you know why they don't? It's because they don't have choices. They don't have competition. In every other market where we have competition, what do you do? You look up on Yelp. You look on Amazon, maybe look at the number of uh, of stars. We should have a flourishing private sector accountability system that would come up if we had competition within the education schooling, you know, uh, system overall. And that would happen through education savings accounts. And so I'm excited about it, you know, as I, you know, look, I went from, um, I went to a small private school from kindergarten to second grade, public school, government school from third grade to sixth grade, and then homeschool from seventh grade through 12th grade. So I kind of went through all those different systems. We, I was in a very low income uh, growing up where we struggled. I saw my parents struggle to put me in homeschool, uh, my grandparents, fortunately, were able to help me out, but like not many people have that opportunity and they fall into often a life of crime because they're in poverty and everything else. And I have saw that, you know, I, I, I live some of that. And, 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 and I think this would be a great way for us to show that we care about kids, we care about families, and that we're really going to provide the next generation with an opportunity to succeed and prosper.
1: Awesome. I appreciate your thoughts there. You know, of course, we'll probably revisit this once we actually see uh, whatever bill, you know, kind of the big three, or at least Patrick and, and, uh, and Abbott are talking about, but want to kind of switch gears. Uh, We had, the budget uh both both chambers released their bill they're very very similar uh and of course you know they had they offered some property tax relief which is uh our our kind of goal right of course we were, we're shooting for elimination so just want your initial thoughts on on the the general appropriations act uh in both chambers and and what you see uh and improvements possibly that can be made
2: yeah tim i mean you know taking a pretty good deep dive and looking at these budgets now for about a decade. um, And we have a biennial budget process here in Texas. So that'd be about five budgets now that I've really looked at pretty deeply. And what's interesting about these, what are called base budgets. These are the initially introduced budgets of what they want to appropriate um, is, is that they are so similar that there really is almost the same budgets, whether or not you look at either one, whether it be the dollar amounts or even some of the specifics that are in them. Now that could be a, a good thing in some sense, meaning that they're on the same page. It could also mean that because we also like to cycle well, you know, like to by law, you cycle through one budget year is by name is going to be a Senate budget. The next one's a House budget. This time is a Senate budget. It's Senate Bill one. Right. So the House may have just been like, OK, we're going to go with what the Senate wants. And then they'll come up with some changes that they'll um, that they'll amend and and present that later that's yeah, that, that could still happen um but i was a little bit surprised to be honest um with the budgets and um look the budgets are too big overall but there was more restraint than what i was imagining that there would be in the overall size of the budgets um, and what the growth rates were going to be um I, I do think, though, that there is a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> um, I know that what we've talked about here is, look, we want um, no growth budgets, which I think would be phenomenal. And or something to remember that we've talked about a little bit is that, you know, another growth budget doesn't mean that no parts of the budget are growing. It just means that if you want to grow in some areas, you've got to start cutting in another. Um, and, and some of that is are a lot of one time expenditures that have happened in the past that are going to fall off the budget anyway. So you could even have some growth in, I don't know, a certain area that you want to fund. Um uh- from the border, for example, or whatever the case may be. But but you've got to find some areas that are going to be cut, and that gives you a no-growth budget. And if you do that, that really allows for more in property tax relief, more money in the pockets of Texans. And right now, when Texans are already struggling with all the Biden administration, the Biden inflation, right, and the Fed pumping so much money in the economy, and, and this year we're going to continue to see interest rates soar, my guess is, is that mortgage rates are going to get back up to 7 8%. They're back down to 6.5, but I think they're going to keep going up because the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates. Car loan rates are going to go up. You know, all these costs are going up. The way that the the legislature can really um, help them is by providing property tax relief. And so when you look at the budgets, what you see is that both budgets have said at least um, on the surface, fifteen billion dollars in property tax relief. But I, but I would say for for us and for the audience here is that you've got to dig into the details. Don't just look at the surface level. Dig into the details, and and if you read Rider eighty one, uh, go go to the LBB's website, find these summaries, and and you look at Rider eighty one. What they do is they break down this fifteen billion dollars. Okay, um, and what they show is that five Three billion dollars of that 15.3 billion 5.3 billion is just to maintain the property tax relief from um, house bill three in 2019 where they did about a seven cent compression which means they reduced property tax rates by about seven percent um, back in 2019 so about 5.3 billion dollars is just to maintain that amount so that's not new relief. That, that's old relief. The 9.7 billion, that difference, right? 15 minus 15.3, 9.7 billion, that would be the new relief that's out there, um, where three billion dollars of that looks to be to raising the homestead exemption from $40,000 dollars today up to 70,000. and that would leave about 6.7 6. billion um, for compressing the rates. And for each penny percentage point of rate compression is about $650 million for a biennium. It costs about $650 million um, to to make sure that compression happens. So what that $6.7 billion is, is about a 10 cent compression of the schoolmates and operation property tax. So that's just the school's portion that funds the lights and teachers and everything else. It still means that they're going to fully fund education based on the state's finance formulas. It's just that they're shifting it from the property tax um, over to, Towards the state funding it right through mainly sales taxes so there's a shift from property taxes to sales taxes and and this is one of the reasons why guys i mean i really think that we should be moving more towards all of it going to compression compressing the rates because ultimately right we all want to get to zero we want to eliminate the school maintenance and operation property tax um, raising the homestead exemption at least by a dollar amount you can never go high enough you know, right? Because valuations could be a million, two million. Like, what are we going to raise it to? But you can get the rate, the, the compression rate down to zero. And so if you do that, then you've eliminated that tax. And so there's a lot of talk about whether or not this is historic property tax relief. And I think it it is in the sense of it's one of the most that we've ever had, even the $9.7 billion. But going back to 08-09, so there was a 06 06-05, there was a, a Supreme Court said that the school finance system was unconstitutional in Texas. In 06, they had a special session. They came up with ideas of what they needed to do, and they cut the property tax rates in a, um, by a third, from a dollar fifty to a dollar. Right. And the way they did that was um, putting fourteen point two billion dollars more into schools. And how did they fund it? Well, they took the business franchise tax, which was a corporate income tax back then, and made it the business margins tax. Uh, a gross receipt style tax a horrible tax um and so they raised that tax they raised the motor vehicle sales taxes and and they also raised the the tobacco tax so cigarette taxes so they raised taxes in order to pay for that 14.2 billion dollars and so i think that needs to be a part of the discussion of how much was that was real relief but at the end of the day whenever the governor's saying hey i want to make a historic we need to be in excess of that number, right? Uh, The 14.2 billion is what I like to see. And if you adjust it for inflation, which I know y'all have talked about some of this, that would be closer to $20 billion. So I think what we really want to see is not just the 15 billion, which only uh, about a third of that is old relief, two thirds, about $10 billion is for new relief, that that new relief that ten billion dollars really needs to be closer to twenty billion dollars, and and so I think if we can see that within these budgets, we'd be in a much better position. And they might need to do you know less spending on broadband, less spending uh, on 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 raising teacher pay, less less spending on a thirteenth check for retired teachers. When instead you could help out teachers, you could help out retired teachers by doing what? Cutting the property taxes. Why not do that instead? And I, I think we'd be in a much better position. So. I would say that I was, um surprised in a good way by some of these budgets that were initially released, but there's a lot of room for improvement.
0: What do you, you, you spoke about the homestead right exemption. We get this question pretty frequently when we go speak. I don't know that our position, we're not opposed necessarily to increasing the homestead exemption, but can you elaborate a little bit more on why that is not probably the best approach, right? To provide not only The relief that we Texas taxpayers need, but also put us on a path to its elimination right like is it kicking the can down the road right like what, how do you define the exemption increase Um, not necessarily as bad right, but maybe not the best approach uh, to what Texas taxpayers are trying to get.
2: Yeah, I think it's a great point Jeremy because uh, I mean I'm not against it entirely. Uh, look, if we're going to lower people's taxes, I'm I'm for it. <laughs> Let's cut taxes as much as possible. The the problem is is looking at the research on this and what's happened in the past is that when you raise that exemption, so from 40,000 to 30 to 70,000, that's a 30,000 delta, right? $30,000. Um, if your valuation goes up by more than $30,000 the first year, all that's eaten up. Right? The, the, there there's no additional um, reduction in your property tax liability in the future, you have to continue to raise that each time, raise that exemption level each time. Um, whereas if you lower the rate on even if your valuation goes up some, right, the, the rate that you're paying um, is being cut. And so that's going to be a larger cut in your overall property tax bill. And remember, we're just talking about the ISD portion, the school maintenance and operation portion of the property tax. So you still have cities, counties, and special purpose districts, which we need to do something with them as well um, by looking at the no new revenue rate to where if they wanna raise their taxes at all, they should be going to the voters, um, or even a spending limit, I think should be, I think the no new revenue rate should be tied to the spending limit on all these local governments. And and think about doing something like, well, what, what what the state's trying to do is to use surplus dollars to buy down their own property taxes to where we could see a situation where all property taxes could be going to zero. I think that would be tremendous. We'd be an economic juggernaut here in the great state of Texas. Um, and so when, whenever I'm thinking about this combination of homestead versus rate compression, homestead is temporary, rate compression can be is permanent and continues to go down. You can get it to go all the way to zero to where you would have zero dollars. You could eliminate the schoolmates and operation property tax. And to me, that's really where we want to be is elimination of those property taxes. That's going to take a lot longer. And it's just not going to be as efficient if you do it through raising the homestead exemption. Awesome.
1: Well, I think that is about our time, Vance. We uh, we appreciate your insights on the budget. Of course, this is definitely not the last time we're going to be talking about the budget or property taxes. I'm sure we'll see at some point in the future as we kind of work through the legislative session. Uh, I want to thank all of our listeners for being with us on this Taxpayer Talks. We will see you all again next week. Uh, be sure to check out us at texastaxpayers.com. Y'all have a good one.
0: Hey everyone, thanks for listening. For even more content, head over to our website, texastaxpayers.com, where you can find all of our written content, the Fiscal Responsibility Index, and a whole host of resources that can help you navigate the already ongoing 88th legislative session. Make sure while you're there to subscribe to the fiscal note and vote notices to stay informed about issues that affect your wallet. Thanks.